the new James Dobson Family Institute. I'm Roger Marsh, and today you're going to hear a classic interview Dr. Dobson conducted nearly 30 years ago. His guest then was theologian, respected professor, and speaker, Dr. Howard Hendricks. Dr. Hendricks taught thousands of students at Dallas Theological Seminary during his tenure, and he was also the author of over 20 books. Dr. Hendricks frequently spoke at Promise Keepers events and served as chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys. He passed away in 2013, but had a tremendous impact on many teachers and pastors and still continues to have that impact even today. Now, in just a moment, you're going to hear his conversation with Dr. Dobson, which centered around a man's view about marriage. They'll explain to wives their husband's mindset, and they'll also share what men desperately want their spouses to know. Dr. Dobson and Dr. Hendricks will also remind couples to forget unrealistic expectations because, well, there are no perfect marriages. With that said, here now is Dr. Dobson's conversation with Dr. Howard Hendricks here on Family Talk. I am really honored to introduce today's guest to our listening audience because he's one of the most respected and loved authorities on the family in Christendom today. He's Dr. Howard Hendricks, uh, more commonly known among his friends as Howie. Uh, Dr. Hendricks is the author of eight or ten, what, eight books, uh, Dr. Hendricks? Yeah, about uh, eight, Jim. Yeah, on the family. I want to talk to you about the male mentality. You know, I wrote a book called What Wives Wish Their Husbands Knew About Women. And in essence, what I was doing in that book was pleading the case mm. of the wife and primarily the homemaker and trying to communicate to her husband what she has difficulty saying to him. I hear that over and over again. I'm sure you do too. Mm -hmm. And people who speak on the family enjoy doing that more than the opposite, pleading the husband's case to the wife. I don't know. Sometimes I think we beat up on the men pretty hard. And I've had some males saying, hey, it's, it's my turn. And every coin has two sides. I think it's time we flip this one over. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about what husbands wish their wives knew about men. And I know you've done some thinking about that. Yeah, Jim, I, I've done a great deal of thinking and I've done a great deal of listening in terms of men who have come to me for counseling, who've been in seminars and other things that I've been involved in. And I've often asked them, you know, what do you really wish that your wife knew? And one of the things that comes through loud and clear is men who say, in effect, I wish my wife would become a student of me. In other words, I wish she knew my personal unique needs and would abandon her preconceived ideas of what a husband is supposed to be. You know, the prejudice in terms of what men are like rather than what my man is like. You know what I found, Howie? Uh, I've heard that question too and a similar kind of comment, but I've found that women are just about as interested in what their men think as they are in having their men know what they think, mm -hmm. but their men don't tell them. They have a hard time communicating it. That's right. And I particularly think that's true, Jim, because men, you know, are so communicative out in their particular field of business or profession, whatever they're in. And when they come home, you know, they want to keep their mouth shut for a while. And it's the gifted, skilled wife who doesn't hit them the moment they walk in the front door and uh, try to unload the truck on them in terms of what happened with the refrigerator that broke down and all of the rest of the problems they have, but who with skilled timing uh, introduces the question, uh, sort of debriefs them in terms of what, you know, what's been going on today. 
What is going on in the minds of Christian men today? What does a man want his wife to know? I think that uh, what a man wants his wife to know is what I am doing in terms of my business, my profession, down at the office, in the factory, wherever I'm involved. And that that's my source of fulfillment. You know, that's what I live for. And uh, obviously, I'm keeping bread on the table, but it's more than that. Because as you know well, many men could care less about the salary per se. What they want to know is, is this worth giving my life to? And uh, what's more exciting than to have a wife who is a part of your team that you are giving your life to something worthwhile and she is the leader of the cheerleading section? You know that many wives see that job as a competitor with her. She resents his love for his work because mm -hmm. that's his first love. You just said it. Yeah. That's his heart and soul. And she sometimes wishes that it was a little less like that. That's right. And, uh, you know, legitimately, in the sense that uh, obviously he should not be worshiping at that shrine. But I think we need to understand that that's how he's wired. That's the thing that turns him on. And her primary involvement in his ministry is to be a, a part of a support team. She does something different. It's no less significant. It's equally important, but they've got to work together as a team. All right, let's take that a step further. How does that love for his work and his profession manifest itself at home? Uh, what are the dimensions of this that get in the way of his relationship with his wife? I think the things that get in the way, Jim, are the fact that he inordinately gives himself to the job, to the profession. In other words, he's married to that more than her, and the job becomes his mistress. You know, it's, it's a form of adultery. You know, we, we talk about adultery, but we only think of it in terms of the physical aspects. But I think many a man is, is married to his work, and his wife is sort of a necessary evil, everybody's supposed to have one, and so forth, but is not really that much a part of his life. So when you say he's wired that way, and that uh, this love for his occupation is built into his nature, that's not an excuse for him to get things out of balance and to let that become his whole world. Precisely, and that is the constant temptation that all of us as men have to face. The great danger of a legitimate concern, being task-oriented, desire to achieve, have meaning in life, becomes such an end in itself that in the process you mortgage a marriage, you mortgage a family, and your people are sacrificed on what I think is an illegitimate altar. Okay, so to follow this first point, what a, what a man needs from his wife is not only recognizing that his job is important to him, but understanding that he needs her support and her uh, recognition of this fact to build his confidence that allows him to go out and compete. I've seen men, and you have too, who had everything they needed to succeed in business or in their particular pursuit, but lacked the confidence of their wives and uh, really accomplished very little. And there's no greater handicap. You know, I've talked to men who are commonly referred to as headhunters, the guys that are looking for the couple hundred thousand dollar a year people. And they have said to me, Howie, to be honest with you, the thing we concentrate on more than anything else is the guy's wife, his marriage, his family. Because we've discovered that he can handle any kind of problem in the corporate world 
if he does not go home to a hell on earth, if he does not go home to a woman who is on his back instead of on his team. Twenty years ago, that corporation uh, often interfered with that relationship. I guess now businesses are recognizing that they better try to hold the relationship together. Harvard Business Review did a study some time ago, and the interesting thing is one of the highest components of the Fortune 500 executives was the fact that they had the smallest number of divorces and marital problems among those presidents and the chief executive officers. Is that right? Fantastic insight. Huh. What else does a man need from a woman? I think he needs a deeper understanding uh, of what love is, a, a realistic picture. You know, here we are living in a cesspool society in which we can't tell the difference between love and lust. We don't know the difference between Chanel number no. 5 and sewer gas number no. 19. <laughs> and when you come to the scriptures, and discover that love is unconditional. In other words, I don't simply love my wife if, but I love my wife no matter what. And that this kind of relationship is a developmental relationship. I've discovered, Jim, that relationships are not formed, they're forged. And in that forging process, there's often heat. You know, true love does not mean the absence of conflict, the, the absence of crisis. I love that Chinese character for crisis, which really is comprised of two characters, meaning dangerous opportunity. Yeah. And many times, you know, people will say to me, boy, I wish I had the kind of marriage you have, Hallie. And I say, do you have any idea of the crises through which Gene and I have gone? We lost three children. You know, we have been through all kinds of agonizing experiences, but every one of them has welded us together. And what I find is that people say, oh, I want that product. But I'm not too sure I want the process that <laughs> well, brings pay that the price. Uh, let's suppose that I am uh, 21 years old and uh, I'm a woman and I've just gotten married to a student at DTS and uh, he's going to become a minister, and I've come in to see you. And I say, uh, Dr. Hendricks, uh, you know, we've only been married for four months, and I don't really understand my man very well. I don't know what he needs from me, and I, I don't even know for sure what my role is with him. Uh, what goes on in his head? What is he like? Uh, you are uh, working with uh, men like him throughout this campus. Uh, what can I expect in marriage? What are the main pitfalls that I should worry about? Well, I think one of the pitfalls that you've got to worry about is that you forget that it is a process and that you're in process and that right now he's in school. Right now he's starting his business profession. And it will probably take an inordinate amount of time compared with what you would like. But that's only a part of the process. You know, as time goes on, he's going to see the need for a more balancing component to his life. So that uh, he's spending more time with his wife, more time with his family. So they're kind of on hold for the moment. It's kind of an unnatural existence. Yeah, in the sense that they are making an investment in his future. And like all of us, you know, we paid a price to get where we are at a given time. No guy goes into medicine, for example, without paying an incredible price. Guys in law school, I talk to these guys, you know, man, it's in the books morning, noon, and night for a period of time. But it's a part of a process. And I find that a woman is 
delighted to pay the price for the process if she understands that it's only temporary. Yeah. This is not a permanent type of thing. Uh, having been on the faculty of a medical school, uh, the third year uh, of uh, the training is the year when the marriages break up because mm -hmm. it's in that year that the wife realizes she thought it was a four-year <laughs> program and then she realizes he's going to be married to medicine for life and the marriage is splinter. Uh, I'm sure some of that occurs. Uh, in it's a, common in all the professions. Huh. Graduate school is the greatest breakup of families on the current scene. Can you tell the couples that probably aren't going to make it when you see them get married? Jim, I wish I had the gift of prophecy, but I don't. <laughs> uh. But I do see signs and symptoms early on that uh, become pretty reliable indices of what's coming down the road. And I find that when you got a couple, man or wife, who's primarily hung up with himself, this is his great objective, you know. Yeah. It's McDonald's, we do it all for you, and that's what he's looking for. He is a good candidate for a breakup in a marriage. I'll tell you what I worry about, and it's a very, very common pattern that I see. The wife comes into the marital relationship with low self-esteem. Uh, maybe she had a tough adolescence uh, for sometimes I think almost innate reasons she doubts her self-worth. Uh, she may be attractive, she may be intelligent, she may come from a good family, but she has this nagging self-doubt you know, that maybe I'm not uh, capable of competing. Maybe if people really knew me, they wouldn't like me. And she sees her potential husband, the man she's going to marry, as an answer to that problem. He is going to love her. He is going to cherish her. He is going to focus his attention on her. He is going to be romantically involved with her for life. And together with that love and support, she can make it for a lifetime. And they're going to raise children, and there's going to be great harmony. So she comes into the marital relationship expecting him to carry her emotionally. She kind of feels like, biblically, it's her right. She can read the Bible, and she knows what it says a man ought to do. Mm -hmm. He comes into the relationship with a rather classic Christian perspective, too, that she is his helpmeet, and that he's going to go out and work 15 hours a day, and he's going to conquer the world. And when he comes home, she's going to bind his wounds, and she's going to meet his needs, and she's going to build his ego and care for him and take care of his children and keep the home together so he can go out and pour all of his energies into some pursuit in life, especially if it's the ministry where God has called him. Boy, that puts a stamp of approval of Almighty God on a one-dimensional life, and she is only a small part of it. So you got her expecting him to meet her needs and him expecting her to meet his needs. And about the third day into the honeymoon, they collide. And they spend 25 years scratching and clawing, or maybe three. Uh, mm -hmm. Very quickly, the marriage explodes because each is looking at it from the selfish perspective. Do you see that on the, among your students? I see it too frequently, Jim. And I would say it's not only unrealistic expectations, but it's also the fact that I'm looking to the wrong person ultimately to meet my needs. I'm looking to my partner instead of to my God. Now, God may use my partner, and my primary purpose as a man coming into the marriage is that my responsibility is not to have my wife meet my needs, but for me to meet my wife's needs, 
Her primary responsibility is to see to it that she meets my needs, and that reverses the whole field. Instead of my primarily being concerned with, you know, what is she doing for me? Am I getting the most out of this type of thing? How often do you see that maturity? Um, not as often <laughs> as I would like. Uh, but I would say that when you reverse a person's mentality, Jim, I think you start them on a new path. You know, I've had people come in to me and say, you know, Hendrix, I'm not getting anything out of this marriage. And I jar them no end by saying, you know, I, I couldn't care less about what you're getting out of it. What I really want to know is what are you giving to the marriage? And, you know, the guy just blows his mind. He sits there and says, you know, well, I, I hadn't thought about that. Well, I said, that's what we've got to do. We've got to reverse our field. Huh. What else does a man need from a woman? Well, I think that he needs a woman who will give up unrealistic expectations of a perfect marriage and seek to build a good one. You know, I, I think we've got too many people, Christians particularly, who are looking for a bionic relationship rather than an adequate one. You know, you're married to a person, and if you're married to a person, I got news for you. It's that, imperfect. Yeah, that person has got problems because we don't have any perfect people, so we don't have any perfect marriages. I think it takes time, it takes effort, it takes often settling for limited objectives. But as you know well, most people come into a marriage very poorly prepared. Well, you know, this true. is the greatest of human relationships. It's the one for which we're least prepared. I asked a gal at the church some time ago who told me she was getting married. I said, did you get any premarital counseling? Oh, she said, Prof, I can't afford that. I said, well... You know, I think I can get you some good premarital counseling here in the Dallas area for about $25. Oh, she said, I don't know that I could invest that. I go to the wedding, and I discovered she spends $3,000 for flowers. Huh. You know, and I said, where are they going to be the next day? The trash. Yeah. So what we do is we spend all of our money, all of our time, all of our effort planning for the wedding rather than for the marriage. Do you do this kind of premarital counseling? We do it extensively at the seminary, trying to help our students and uh, people in the community for this type of thing. In the course of that, do you try to explain to wives who their husbands are? We definitely do. In fact, we do a lot of testing to help them see who is the person that they are married in order to filter out the unrealistic expectations, the idealized person you're going to marry. See, I happen to believe, Jim, that when you come into a marriage, you have an ideal picture of your partner. But when you get into the marriage, you're living with a real person. Wow. Now you've got one of two options. Either you're going to tear up the picture or you're going to tear up the person. Mm -hmm. What do you tell the young women you counsel about their husband's sexual needs? Well, I would tell them primarily that a husband's sexual needs are probably going to be at their peak during the early years of their marriage. And that this is not a peripheral type of concern to them. This is a primary concern to them. And they are going to have to spend time not only understanding a man and how a man functions, but also how this man functions and how I can meet his needs. How is he different from her? Well, he's different from her in a number of ways. Uh, one is that uh, he sexually is excited primarily by what he sees, in contrast to a woman who is sexually attracted primarily by what she feels. 
to him it's a very specific and focused type of drive to her it's a very diversified and total type of drive in the sense that it affects all that's happening to her in her life rather than just the fact that I'm going to be satisfied and then it's over one of the things I wish we could get across to young couples that uh, is that if the sex life is not what it ought to be uh, stick around uh, sometimes it takes years to really understand one another sexually and it can get better through the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and even 60s and uh, if you're committed to that uh, that's really one of the beauties of marital sex is that instead of getting old you constantly learn and you constantly improve I had a student come into my office some time ago Jim and, and say to me you know I, I think that I'm a pervert I, I don't think that I'm really uh, successful in my sexual relationship and my marriage. I said, how long have you been married? He said, three years. I said, what in the world are you looking for? He began to tell me about it. And what he's looking for is a 30-year-old marriage experience after three years of marriage. Huh. The level of expectations is one of the major problems in marriage, isn't it? I would People say People come a... into it anticipating this phenomenal relationship, and it has to build. It has to build, it has to be developed, and there is a price tag attached, and it's not available in a bargain basement sale. Howie, what do you think is happening to marriage today? Are we going to survive? Is it going to continue to deteriorate? We're going to have the divorce rate among Christians continue to grow. Uh, what do you anticipate? Well, I wish I could say that it was going to improve, but realistically, Jim, I would have to say I think it's going to continue to go two routes. On the one hand, it's going to deteriorate by virtue of the culture. We have drunk too deeply at the well of our culture, and we've got all of its characteristics. But I find an increasing number of young men and women, particularly, who want to break with the herd, who have seen what the pagans have to offer and said there's got to be a better way. And that's the group that I have a great deal of hope for, Jim. I just am very excited about the young couples that I see who are developing a quality of relationship, a commitment to marriage that is really modeling. If the Christian family survives, you will have played a role in it, Howie, with your books, with your speaking and lecturing, and certainly with the training of ministers that you've done for nearly three decades. And uh, you've been an inspiration to me, and I appreciate your sharing your wisdom with us today. Jim, that's been my privilege. My primary focus has been to seminary students, to young people going into positions of leadership in our churches. And hopefully they are going to model good marriages, and they're going to teach some of the basic principles that you've tried to explicate through the years that you've been in this. Uh, I appreciate that. I've said uh, a number of times that the church is the first line of defense for the family. Uh, we must not undermine it. Uh, national ministries of this nature must not undermine it. I ask people not to support us until they've met their obligations to the local church because when somebody's sick, it's the pastor that'll be there. I won't fly to New York to be there. It's the pastor that will be there when someone has a spiritual need. It's the pastor who will be at the hospital and who will uh, train and love and guide. And so what you're doing in terms of training pastors to be more sensitive to family needs and indeed to hold their own families together is critical to this battle to save the family.